Hello, politicos, and welcome to another episode of The Trill, a podcast by The Trillium. My name is Aiden Shimandi. I'm a reporter here at The Trillium. Today, I'm joined by... Dan Moulton, partner at uh, Crestview Strategy and uh, Long-Term Material Liberal. And as we were talking about earlier, just about the only neutral liberal in the province, which is why Dan is perfectly placed to come on today to talk about the Ontario Liberal leadership race. Uh, On the weekend, November 25th and 26th, is when folks who want to will vote in the election. And then next Saturday, December 2nd, in downtown Toronto is when the new leader will be announced. So lots of important dates coming up not to mention a Kitchener Centre by-election on November 30th. So lots of work for the party. So Dan, the race has been officially on for months now, uh, unofficially for going back even to the last election. And I'm just wondering if we could take a minute to step back, take a broad view and just kind of assess what's the kind of biggest moments, some of the flashpoints in the campaign have been. I got a couple, um, but I'm I'm wondering if uh, if we get your thoughts on that first. Yeah, well, I think the reality that has most impacted this race was the adoption of a new set of rules. Uh, That moment really changed the dynamics. In in 2020, um, after the 2018 election, there was a moment where Ontario Liberals were, you know, obviously um, bruised uh, from a a disastrous election in 2018 and really rethinking how we should elect a leader. And I think there was a moment at, I want to say it was the 2019 uh, AGM, where liberals were considering a one-member, one-vote system and voted it down, uh, decided to stick with a delegated convention, which was used in 2020 to elect uh, then-leader uh, Stephen Del Duca. This time around, we have a completely different ballgame. We have a one-member, one-vote system uh, where members are going to rank their ballot, they're going to vote in their local ridings. Uh, those those votes are going to then be uh, counted in a, in a weighted fashion in which ridings will have a, a 100 points uh, weighted system across the province, uh, giving each region and each riding uh, a really influential say in this race. That's a system that conservative parties provincially and federally have used before, but it's the first time Ontario Liberals have, have used it. So that, for me, the adoption of that system uh, and then seeing how campaigns have responded to that was probably the most important moment that that kicked this whole thing off and, and defined the race in a, in a huge way. Okay, I'm actually really glad you brought that up because that wasn't one of the kind of flashpoints that I that I wanted to bring up. So I will park those for now and follow up on, <laughs> on just kind of like how the weighted one member one vote affects campaign strategy and campaign's potential path to victory, paths to victory. Well, it's that regionality part for me, right? It's it's the fact that you cannot have your support concentrated in one part of the province. Uh, you really have to be able to turn out your your members to uh, that are, are dedicated to voting for you, identified to vote for you in every part of Ontario to hit uh, an important mass uh, in, in individual ridings in every in every region. And that I think is um, driving the strategic considerations of a lot of the campaigns right now. It's how um, Yasser and Nate in particular, who, um, you know, I think at this point, it's it's become clear are in uh, the second and third uh, position from a fundraising perspective, from a um, consensus on, on polling and, 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 and where support has, has coalesced. 
they have really tried to leverage that um, that opportunity to secure enough support in Northern Ontario and Southwestern Ontario, in the Niagara region, in Eastern Ontario, where uh, they perceive the front runner, Bonnie Crombie, won't necessarily have uh, a consolidated amount of support like she will in Peel region uh, in the greater Toronto area. So, you know, that, that has been uh, an important element of this. I, I will say, I think, if you look at the experience conservative parties have had with that, it's the best analogy provincially and federally. The conservatives have used this leadership system a couple times. I think the experience they had was the first time they did it, much like Ontario Liberals are going through right now. Nobody really knew how to change their approach. The muscle memory of leadership of delegated conventions and leaderships in the past kicks in. And so I think I, I'm not sure we've seen a complete change. I think there'll be a lot of lessons learned by Ontario Liberals that have participated in all of the campaigns in this process. And uh, we actually might see uh, a more effective strategy in, in, in future campaigns. Um, that said, uh, the results are going to be what demonstrates the success of the campaign's ability to adapt to these new rules, right? If Bonnie Crombie wins on the first ballot, uh, she'll have clearly figured it out. Um, if she fails to, and if uh, we see uh, Yasser or Nate um, come from behind and, and take this thing in a way that, quite frankly, conservative leaders have been elected in these delegated systems, uh, you know, that that will be a signal they figured it out too. So I think we'll see uh, on December 2nd uh, whether or not anyone properly leveraged this uh, dynamic to their advantage. Yeah, and if the, uh, if the leader who's announced on December 2nd uh, ends up winning in 2026, we might, uh, it might be a long time before they, the, um, future campaigns can uh, can kind of apply the lessons learned. Um, but getting back to the kind of flashpoints that I had identified or, or you know, some, some things that garnered some significant media attention that I wanted to bring up. Uh, the, the first one is um, Mayor Bonnie Crombie's entrance into the race and some of the comments yeah, for sure. around uh, the green belt and, and her being uh, wanting to take the party in a kind of more centrist right of center direction that she obviously walked back. But uh, that, that, I mean, Nate, hopped on that big time. I'm just wondering if you you have any thoughts on kind of how that that shaped the narrative of the race so far. Well, you know, I wouldn't fixate on on her entry into the race uh, in that way. I would focus more on the fact that she's a figure of uh, a bit more universal appeal, which has put her in a front runner position in this uh, process. Um, she has a, a big name. Uh, she's a big platform as mayor of Mississauga. Uh, she drew the attention immediately of both the entire, you know, collective provincial media that that cover provincial politics, uh, but also the the sitting premier himself, right? Doug Ford immediately started engaging with her in a way that um, I think shit was was largely driven by a, an absence of discipline and calms on on his part, um, but really signaled a different dynamic and a different energy in this race, right? The NDP a year ago. They had a quiet coronation of Merritt Styles that no one really paid attention to. No one had ever really heard of her. I got an argument. Most people still haven't heard of her. Uh, but Bonnie's entrance into the race really changed the dynamic because Nate and Yasser are, are figures that Ontario liberals know really well. And I think a lot of people would know Yasser pretty well from his time as Ontario uh, Attorney General. But Bonnie is, is a bit more uh, of a dynamic figure outside of liberal circles. And I think that changed the energy in this race and it challenged Yasser and Nate to up their game. So I would say that her entrance into the race was the second flashpoint for sure. I started with the rules. I'd say she, her jumping into the ring really changed things. 
uh, and made this a, a different race. You mentioned uh, the green belt and, and a perceived stumble on her part as she she entered the ring. I would say that if we were talking hot, you know, hot points or, or flashes in this race, Doug Ford and and his green belt scandal uh, in the way that it exploded this past summer with the Auditor General's report um, is probably for me the third biggest one. Uh, and I would say that because of for, for two reasons. One, Greenbelt as a policy is a liberal legacy that is core to our identity as Ontario liberals. Um, that 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 is a sacred uh, policy. Uh, Ontario liberals care a great deal about it, and it really struck a chord with Ontarians. And I think it gave Ontario liberals an opportunity uh, in the public conversation um, to to really leverage that moment and uh, again, infuse a lot of energy in a race that you know has the potential not to be a very exciting process. Right. And so, you know, when we talk about what are the big moments, well, they're the moments in which, you know, you got to get a shot of adrenaline into a leadership race that has a risk of not being very exciting. Uh, and for me, the, the third one would have been a green belt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another one that I'd identified was, um, uh, Adil Shamji dropping out to endorse Bonnie Crombie. That happened uh, about a month and a half ago, maybe maybe two months ago now. Um, thoughts on how how that has uh, played into the race? Yeah, obviously that was a, a well timed um, endorsement for for Bonnie uh, headed into the final leg of this race this fall. Uh, his decision to to exit and back her um, certainly you know added a win to her sales. For me, it's it's less um, of a moment just because I don't think most Ontarians would have had any idea who he was. Um, and so, you know, you look at other endorsements which have emerged more recently. We've seen some regional endorsements like Mayor Lehman, Jeff Lehman and uh, Barry, the Sudbury PLA endorsing Bonnie. Both of those endorsements actually, for me, probably matter more from a regional perspective and, a, 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 and you know, the, the leveraging the local elements of this race. Um, but then at the same time, Deb Matthews endorsed Yasser a week ago. And, and, and like that to me means more to a lot of Ontario liberals and probably people that aren't, you know, following this race closely, aren't engaged in it on a daily basis of the hundred thousand people that have signed up to vote. They're looking at, um, these endorsements. I mean, I'd say Deb probably outweighs Adil in terms of the impact that they're going to have on the race. And then last one before we move on is uh, an endorsement of sorts. It was the uh, pact between Yasser and Nate to uh, rank each other second uh, on their ballots. That was uh, yeah. that was an interesting one only a couple of weeks ago and uh, drew a lot of media attention. For sure. Yeah, that would be if we were picking four, that would be for me number four. Um, the the decision to do that was probably a really difficult one for both of the campaigns. Um, we are not in a delegated leadership convention process, as we've already talked about. And you usually see that kind of moment play out on the floor of the convention, right? I, I think many people who would have followed closely the 2013 leadership convention in which Kathleen Wynne was elected, they remember that really dramatic, those dramatic moments when Eric Hoskins crossed the floor and, and, and Charles Sousa did as well. And those were moments that are, are, are exciting hallmarks of delegated leadership conventions um, that are very storied and a big part of, of, you know, when you look back on provincial or federal conventions. That doesn't happen in this race, right? You don't get that moment. And so Yasser and Nate decided to try and create one themselves outside of the context of an in-person environment. And I, I think it will depend. Well, look, we'll see it in the results. That will there'll be the signal as to whether or not it worked. Uh, obviously, we've seen some media, particularly the Toronto Star, take a great deal of um, 
you know, critique of it, quite frankly. Uh, their columnists have been very, very uh, heavy on the critique of that move. I would say uh, when I look at that decision, what matters most, and we'll, again, we'll see if it plays out in the results, is uh, they are coordinating their get out the vote efforts uh, as part of that pact. And as uh, anyone who follows these, these things closely knows, that is a big deal. Um, conservatives, I, you know, I have a lot of great conservative colleagues that have been involved in these same leadership processes in the past. And the, the coordination of your get out the vote is meaningful. It has an opportunity to, to really change the dynamic, assuming the voters that they turn out uh, follow the lead and, and, and vote them one and two respectively. And so, you know, I, I agree. I think that for me is a, it is a big moment in this race. It drew a great deal of attention. Um, and it probably, I would say, infused Nate's name into the campaign in his final stretch in a way that um, I don't know would have happened otherwise, frankly. So on December, actually on November 25th and 26th, 103,000 liberals will have the opportunity to vote. Uh, obviously, six digits is a very big number, a significant jump from past leadership campaigns. Did that number surprise you at all? It certainly is a record, right? So, I mean, that is an impressive feat. Uh, I also know that the bulk of that 100,000 people didn't arrive to this process through one of the leadership campaigns. They came through the party, signed up on the website, took out a membership. I think part of that is is driven by uh, a frustration with the current government, the Doug, uh, Doug Ford's Greenbelt scandal, I think helped to uh, to add a certain energy to uh, to those numbers. So it is surprising in a way. Um, you mentioned the voting this weekend. That's 100,000 people. Um, uh, we'll see what the turnout looks like. Uh, membership was free. So, you know, it's a low commitment to uh, to sign up, but to show up in person to, you know, a church basement in your riding uh, takes a whole nother level of commitment. And so I think we'll, we'll have to wait and see the level of, uh, of, of turnout we, we, we are able to achieve. What would be a turnout number that you would think signals a, a true engagement in, in this campaign, in this effort? Anything north of 40 would be, I think, um, a, a pretty significant number from my perspective. I think you look at, um, you look at A, the, the, the requirement to show up in person, um, you know, people actually learning that, understanding when they have to go, where they have to go. Um, it, it is a harder thing uh, than I think people would give credit to. Uh, and then, you know, just broadly, voter turnout has slid, um, you know, with the general population in the last number of years. We are talking about a more engaged group of citizens that have signed up for the party. But still, I would be I would be impressed if we're in the high 40s. I think that would be a really significant achievement for the party. Anything north of 50 would be outstanding. Um, that would be a, a really big signal that there's a, a huge amount of energy in the party. So going to the election itself. What do you think would be a number that the leading candidate could receive on the first ballot that would signal after the last candidate drops off that that leading candidate, you know, either has it wrapped up or a number that would maybe really throw this race into chaos? Yeah, there's there's sort of a range people um, are thinking about. For me, what I'll be watching for on the first ballot is whether or not Bonnie can get north of 40. I think she needs 42 percent, in my opinion on the first ballot in order to, to, to sustain the momentum to win the thing. She falls lower than that. I think it's a, a pretty clear signal. It's anybody's ball game. 
um, and some interesting stuff could happen. Um, that is sort of the experience that, as I mentioned a couple times here, the best analogy to Conservative Party, um, their involvement in this this set of rules has indicated. So, I, yeah, I, I would say for me, Bonnie gets north of 40. She's got a real good shot of it. Anything less than uh, than that, and, and it's anybody's ballgame. Now, I wasn't around in 2020 for the Del Duca leadership, 2013 for the Wynn leadership. I wasn't even born when Dalton McGinty uh, assumed leadership in uh, in 96. <laughs> so I, I really don't have any kind of insight. You're making your listeners and me sound old, man. Well, I, I mean, I have a mustache now, so I look old and, and wise and seasoned. <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm caused by journalistic aesthetic. Um, so how does this race compare to those in, in kind of terms of that party infighting? We've seen a number of the candidates go pretty hard against Bonnie for uh, perceived vulnerabilities, uh, you know, kind of similarities to Ford. We've heard the term Ford light thrown around a lot. Yeah, that's, you know, it's a, it's a great question. I would, um, I would say that the, the difference between 2013, of course, is that in that race, we were electing a premier. And so that's a, a much different dynamic, right? You, you had a sitting premier uh, step aside and make way for a new uh, a new leader, and that leadership process involved sitting cabinet ministers, uh, former cabinet ministers. Uh, it was dynamic, and, and the result was someone who would be assuming uh, you know the highest office in the province. And so that is um, that's a different dynamic. This this to me is a lot more like ninety nine. You mentioned when Dalton McGinty was was elected leader. Um, or the the federal leadership process, and um, I, I think it was two thousand eight, where where uh, Stephen Dion was elected the leader of the Liberal Party, right? Like those uh, those moments are are more akin because you're electing an opposition leader that's that's well positioned um, to to stand in the next election um, to run uh, successfully, uh, but not electing someone who's about to assume office. You're you're essentially choosing someone to reshape the image of the party, reshape its set of policies, and then take that to the electorate. Um, so th- those are the the analogous ones for me. <laughs> you know, a lot of people have been drawing the comparison of Nate and Yasser's uh, pact to the one between uh, Stephen Dion and Gerard Kennedy in that federal leadership process. Um, that that I, I mean, is isn't a fair analogy. Right? It's a fair comparison to draw um, in that there's a, a similar dynamic at play where you have front runners, um, you have people who are further down on the ballot, um, and you have an opportunity in this process because of the rank ballot nature of it um, to, to shift the dynamic away from that front runner and see someone unexpected come from behind. Sorry, listeners. I got my dates wrong on the Dalton McGinty leadership. It was 99. I was born then. So yeah, hopefully you're not feeling as <laughs> old as you were earlier. Um, I thought I was worried there for a minute. I thought there's no way, there's no way you weren't born in 99. January 12th, 1997 at, at oh. nine at 37 AM. Don't ask me why I remember that. Um, so just kind of in the in the same vein of the the last question, do you see any issues around unification once there's a leader? I think liberals are are generally uh, pretty efficient at moving past leadership processes and rallying behind a new leader in a way that conservatives just aren't as strong at. Their parties are far more broker um, um, of a movement, brokerage of a movement. Uh, where you have different competing factions of an ideology and a really deep entrenched philosophical debate. Uh, liberals are are much more moderate, um, much more oriented around uh, seizing the levers of the state. Um, and so you you tend to see liberals 
coalesce a little bit better uh, around a new leader. Sometimes wounds are are, are slower to heal, uh, but frankly, I don't know that um, that will be the case here. I think liberals um, are going to be excited about the opportunity to challenge Doug Ford with any of the new leaders um, uh, or any of the potential new leaders, I should say. And so I think we will see a moment uh, of rallying. I will say though, um, it'll it'll depend, right? I mean, if if uh, we have a surprise, um, you know, and there will be a heavier lift for some, um, you know, if Ted Shu comes from behind and wins this thing, as unlikely as that is, that's going to be a heavier lift, uh, not to unify liberals, but to um, you know move past a moment of of shock, right? Uh, and I think the same thing is true uh, for Nate, right? If if Nate was to be a surprise victor of this thing. Um, he does come from a, a different part of the, the Liberal Party, um, ideologically, I think. And so, you know, he would have uh, probably the, the biggest challenge in um, setting a standard. But I don't, I don't think it's impossible. And I think actually, um, you know, he would he'd be pretty adept at that moment, too. So last one for me here, because I know you got to run. More important for the new leader to peel off support from the NDP or from the PCs? Um, you know, we get that question a lot, right? I, I'm asked often, like, how do you, how do you, as Ontario liberals, find a space for yourself uh, in the ideological spectrum or in the, the voter spectrum um, that is compelling and exciting? And, and it's something that we, we have struggled to do, particularly as the conservatives haven't been very conservative, right? I mean, Doug Ford's government uh, governs from, I would argue, the the distinct center, I think there, there are ethical challenges that have been exposed in the Greenbelt uh, scandal uh, aside, their budgets are are enormous, right? That they're bigger than than Kathleen Wynne's ever were. And so that uh, that presents a unique challenge for Ontario Liberals when Conservatives are governing uh, like a Liberal government uh, would in some ways. And so I think that um, addressing that challenge, defining ourselves as distinct from uh, the approach that they've taken. Um, and then at the same time, holding the progressive voter coalition with you um, is uh, is how liberals succeed. But the reality is on the left side of it, I don't think it's as challenging as some would argue. And the, the reason for that is that um, progressive voters, let's look at the, the federal liberals right now, Justin Trudeau's liberals, um, a huge part of their success has been that they are seen as the most likely to win an election and be the conservative. And, and the reality is that voters in Ontario, when they cast their vote ballot federally or provincially, they know that liberals beat conservatives. And so um, it's a it's an easier lift, I think, to, to, to hold that progressive coalition together if you're a, a campaign strategist for the Liberal Party. It, it's not, it's not, you know, a walk in the park. You still have a lot of work to do. Um, you have to be be clearly the winner as well. Like you can't be in this position where we were in 2022, where Stephen Del Duca kind of looked like a loser in that final week, um, at risk in his own riding. Um, that that really demoralizes. That really keeps progressive voters at home, uh, or it lets them sort of cast their ballot, you know, a bit more freely. Um, but you know, I, I would say our our focus is going to end up being on occupying the left of center and and winning back voters that have moved to uh, to the conservatives in the last few elections or stayed home, frankly. Right? I mean, you look at turnout in twenty twenty two in a lot of ridings, it was twenty four percent, which is a shame, right? And 
I think that that demonstrates uh, the work of the the Liberal Party. Um, it's it's about getting people to show up, believe in in our ability to win. Dan, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Anytime, man. It was really good to be here. Thanks for the invite and uh, all the best. I'll see you uh, in the weeks ahead. Uh, it's going to be an exciting race. Absolutely. See you December 2nd. Listeners, stay tuned two weeks uh, today for our next regular episode, but also watch your feed for a special live on the ground edition from the Liberal Leadership uh, Convention announcement. You'll probably hear from announcement. Announcement. Yeah, I was going to say I'll be there, man. So uh, we can chat then. All right. Cheers. Cheers.